Let us pray. We beseech thee, O Lord, pour thy grace into our hearts, that as we have known the incarnation of thy Son, Jesus Christ, by the message of an angel, so by his cross and passion we may be brought unto the glory of his resurrection. Through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. That was, of course, the Marian collect for today, and the Marian antiphon for the first part of Advent, at least. Watching a news show the other night, and there was a person on there who had committed a crime and gotten away with it. Uh, and he was asked by the reporter, have you ever confessed to the people that you hurt? And because he claimed to be a Christian, and, and now, now a Christian. Uh, and he said, his comment was, I don't confess to people, I confess to God. Uh, and he said, nowhere in the Bible does it say that we are confessed to other people. And I thought, tilt? Yeah. Not true. So that's a question we get asked in Orthodoxy, and that is, why do Orthodox Christians confess to a priest when confession of sin should be to God? So we want to address that. Um, and there are really two, two parts to the answer. One is, and, and, and I'll come back to the final answer at the end of this, but one is that what Scripture does say and secondly, what the tradition tells us, what's always been practiced. So if we're dealing with the scriptural basis of this issue, we have to look at three texts. 1 John 1, 8-9, James 5, 16, uh, and John 20, 23. So 1 John 1, 8-9 says, If we say that we have no sins, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, we all heard that one and we know it. James 5.16. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So much for nowhere in the Bible does it say. <laughs> confess your... By the way, nobody likes the book of James. Nobody <laughs> likes it. Martin Luther didn't like it either. Uh, and, and unfortunately... His reaction to it was such that people misunderstood him, I think. Uh, and what we think is that Romans means one thing and James means, means something else entirely. And so we skip James and we go to Romans, and that's an American view, an American Christian view. Actually, I've done some research on this, and if you take the, the language of the two books and parallel them side by side, they say exactly the same thing, except that St. Paul is much more verbose than St. James is but they use the same arguments in the same presentations. Very, very interesting. Maybe we'll deal with that someday. So confess your, your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And finally, you know, well, only God can forgive sins. That's what they said to Jesus, right? Uh, so in John, said that, in John it said Jesus' words, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Those are the call of, those are the cat three aspects of making confession. So a, a note that we need, and, and again, we're influenced by our society around us. So what's going on around us is passed off as being Christian belief. Saw some other show, I think it was last night, and it the answer to it, it demands, no, actually it was a conversation with our youngest. Uh, the 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 value of bioethics and what I realized in it is that bioethics really 
has no value unless the people that are imposing the ethical standard have a solid and definitive ethical standard. And much of American Christianity does not have definitive standards. It's anything goes. And if that's the case, then how can you discern whether something is ethical? One can't. But we have a definitive situation. In fact, uh, I, I Googled that and wound up with an article put out by OCA on their website. And everything it said was classic down-the-line orthodoxy. <laughs> and it was very specific and very clear. It, and, it, it, and it didn't deny some of the things that were, that were advocated by modern medic, medicine and science. It just simply put them in the right context. So it was, it was good to read that and see it. I think it gave a good view of what bioethics is. Uh, and it brought it to, to the context, to proper context. We need to see this in the proper context. So number one, it's scriptural. Number two, in terms of this scriptural aspect, in the first, to the first century Jewish Christians, I've mentioned this concept before, any positive statement was considered to be a commandment. So when one talks about the 613 commandments of the law, we, we try to number them, thou shalt and thou shalt not, because that's what we think of commandment. We're having a hard time coming up with 613. Unless we take all the positive statements of the Old Testament and understand them as understood as commandments, then there are 613. Maybe more. Who knows? So in any case, it's a command. It's not a request. Confess your sins to one another. That's pretty scary. You mean, you really mean it? Oh, listen, the church is merciful, and you need to know that. Uh, it really is. And it will be to the one confessing persons it benefit that you, that you may be healed. There's the clue, that you may be healed. Remember that. So let's take the other part of that, the scriptural basis. That's what scripture says and is how it's understood. The history of sacramental confession, if we call it that. Well, in the first century A.D., confession of some sort often preceded baptism. Uh, in Acts, it tells us before these people were baptized, a number of people who were converts. It says, and I quote, And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds to the whole congregation. It was done, as I mentioned, in front of the community. Can you imagine that? Standing up in front of the church and say, well, I did this, this, and that. We're starting that next week. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just trying to prepare you there for these things. You know. so, we're being biblical here and traditional. It might be easier. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, let me... <laughs> You have to remember that the first, we can be shocked by such a thing, but you have to remember a couple of things. One is that this was a community that was facing really emerging and very strict resistance from the world for the first three centuries. So when people gathered together, it might be the last time they saw each other. Uh, and when, when you have that kind of attack going on, when someone stands up and confesses a sin, you know, yeah, yeah who cares? That's nothing compared to what what we're all facing. Uh, remember that too when you're exchanging the peace. It's not a matter of, hey, how you doing? Glad to see you. It's the peace because for them in the first century, it might be the last time they ever saw each other. And they didn't know from one day to the next what it was going to be like. So, and these were people who were not sh prone to shock. 
at other people's misfortunes, other people's sins. Uh, and in many cases, usually the only things that were confessed were serious things, what we would call mortal sins, apostasy, adultery, murder, you know, not little things like, well, I lost my temper yesterday or, you know, yelled at my kids or my wife. I didn't listen to my wife or something like that, whereas now we go through all of that stuff because we've been influenced by 2,000 years of monastic tradition, which also points out the smallest things. And in this time frame in the first century, the first early, the new Christians were, were baptized first and trained later. So we can't even imagine that. We, we, have, we feel like we have plenty of time, so we try to train people and prepare them. And that's because we want them to understand what this is all about. It's not a game. It's not something we pick up one day and say, oh, I think I'll do this. Maybe I'll try this Christianity and see if it works. <laughs> I guarantee if we really try it, it does work. It's got 2,000 years of proof. In the second century, when it began, became clear, by the time it had become clear that Jesus was not coming back this minute, that maybe, maybe we had a little bit of time, uh, and his advent was delayed, and the church was growing quickly all over the place. It's nice to find maps of the places of churches in the first, second, third, and fourth centuries and look at the increasing number of dots that you see on the maps through this time frame. It's really amazing how things grew. Uh, in any case, as we realized that there was time to instruct and we could do that, uh, changes began to take place. Now, every location has its own ways. I mean, does the same things, but slightly different adjustments. So you might find ex exceptions to some of these rules, but this is generally what happened across the board. Uh, baptisms began to be performed at Pascha, the Easter celebration. And in anticipation of that, the last <coughs> six weeks of, uh, before Pascha, which have come to be known as Lent to us, were used as a time for increased last-minute preparation of those who were preparing to be baptized. Usually it included instruction in the Gospels, deeper instruction in the Gospels if they hadn't already had it, uh, learning how to do self-examination and doing it, uh, and practicing fasting. Does that all sound familiar? <laughs> That's what we do at Lent. Well, some of, the, some of the faithful who were sponsors, or in some way like sponsors, began to join their, their catechumen candidates or baptismal candidates in the practice. You know, I'm supporting so-and-so, and he's going through fasting in this regimen of spiritual discipline, and I'm going to do it with him. Uh, and people began to really benefit from that, so others started doing it, and next thing you know, everybody's doing it. Everywhere you look, there's Lent. There's no getting away from it. That tells you how, how it spread. Everybody realized the benefit of it. And it culminated with confession of past sins and baptism. So we have in the first century the practice of confessing before the congregation. For This was for everybody. Uh, and, in the, and, the, and in the second century, others joining in the practice in, in the overall practice. By the fourth century, with the legitimation of Christianity, remember Christianity, Constantine, Saint Constantine, we call him, legitimized Christianity. A lot of people in America like to think that Christianity went down the drain either when the first apostles died, or when the apostles died at the end of the first century, or when Constantine became emperor. 
and they can't imagine why we would call him Saints Constantine. And as I have mentioned to you in the past, historians are now reevaluating Constantine. There are any X number of books out there you can read on, on his Christianity uh, and what scholars have to say about that. So in any case, with the legitimation of Christianity, and a lot of nominal people began to flock into the church. Uh, and so public confession began to scandalize. You can imagine, uh, you know, you did what? And so what happens next when we hear that? Something really juicy, right? We go and we say, let me tell you what I heard in church today. <laughs> so here we have one of the greatest mysteries of all happening on the altar, and we're worried about what so-and-so did. So across the board, it seems that what happened was a change was made. So in place of the congregation, it was in front of the priest who represented the congregation. So it's still fulfilling the ex expectation. The priest represents everybody. So everybody's represented in him. Well, that's the case in the altar. When the priest is standing at the altar, he's, not, he's there to represent Christ and to represent us. And when his back is turned to us, he represents us before God. That's the way it works. It has always been that way. So it was changed so that it was just to the priest. It's done to protect us from sin. And to make it, and, and, and one of the benefits of it, it makes it a little more tolerable. It's a whole lot easier to confess to one person than it is to the whole congregation. So when you're worried about going to confession, just think about how bad it could be. <laughs> you could have to do it in front of the entire congregation. So it's still scriptural and it's still done. Now, I'm going to give you some counsel on this. So I'm doing this. The reasons, number one, the reasons for not confessing. Number one, sloth. That is, we're putting off procrastination of dislike tasks, right? And we dislike this one. So sloth is the first one. Let me get the magic mark here. So lest you forget, let us remember and never forget what you say about Passover. Sloth. The second one is, I think it's pride. Usually it it's, it's accompanies this question. What will he think of me? What will he think of me? That's pride. And, and you know, it's amazing. <laughs> Priests hear it all. I, I assure you, that's another, another sin of pride in, in the confession is we think we sin uniquely. My, he's never heard anything like this before. And my God, I'm going to go in there and I'll never be able to stand, look him in the face again. Forget it. We all do the same stuff. I, there, I like to watch movies to see how poorly Hollywood portrays the clergy. But every once in a while they get something right. And two movies that, rec that I've recognized that was, were two little scenes, one called Last Rites with Tom Berenger. And he's hearing confessions, and he's sitting in the confessional, and everybody, people are coming in, the line, they're lined up outside the confessional, and they're confessing, and he's hearing all this stuff, and he's gradually sliding down like this <laughs> in the confessional. I want you to keep that in mind when you think you're really sinning uniquely. The other one is in the Rosary Murders with Donald Sutherland, and he's going into the confessional to hear, and he's got a newspaper with him. And he, put, and he sits down in the chair and he breaks out his newspaper and slides the, door, the window open so they can start confessing. And, you know, one side says, well, that's really calloused. I mean, so indifferent. But on the other hand, it really fit. I thought, this is exactly how it is. 
Yeah, I'm not here. I don't care. I, and I got to tell you, from my perspective, I like to control the level of intimacy between us. So we have a conversation. I like to be in control of it. That's just one of my sins. Well, when in the confession, you control it. And I, as an introvert, get very uncomfortable with that. So it's not like I'm sitting, let me hear what you got to say, you know. It's not that kind of thing. And, a lot of, and I'm not the only one like that. A lot of people are like that. So you may be too. I don't know. What? I had a priest yawn. Oh, well, yeah. There are some it means you need to send more interesting. Yeah. <laughs> that challenge. Now, see, if, if you'd been on the ball, you would have come up with something very quickly. <laughs> Next one is fear. What will he think of me? Or fear is I confess to God alone. I don't confess to people, I confess to God. <clears throat> That's fear. What are we afraid of? If this is true, and the church has said it is, and St. James tells us, and hence God speaking through the apostles tell us, then why are we so afraid of it? You know, I, I'm going to add here, the things that scare us about Christianity are really good things. A couple of weeks ago in the sermon, I talked about judging ourselves, judgment. That's a negative thing. Oh, we don't want to talk about that. What about confession? Oh, we don't want to talk about that. What about forgiving enemies? Oh, we don't want to talk about that. And so if the priest brings those things up, we're saying, oh, he always talks about the negative. Well, who's got the negative in mind here? We do. Those are good things that heal us. Confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. We need to see it the proper way. I'll have more to say about that in the sermon on Christmas Eve. <laughs> These are related. And here's something. This comes out of, of Father Zacharias. He says, when we get to these points, we're more concerned with our image before the priest than we are our image before God. That's a scary thought. And he's absolutely right. Absolutely right. Well, there's another one then. If the reasons for not confessing, then understanding the whole concept of healing. Confession abases our pride. Pride is the root of all sins. I'm first, even before God. So confession abases, if we really do it properly, we really do it truthfully, it's an abasing of our pride. Father Zacharias says, one of the things he says, and this jumped out at me the first time, I thought it's so right, and I'm, and I'm guilty of it, was that he talked about the goodness of shame in the confessional. That is, we're ashamed of our actions. Uh, and, you know, we don't want to try to force something, but we shouldn't we shouldn't put down or try to deny something which is actually healing. So shame in the confessional is healing. It cleanses us. That's why sometimes we can come out of the confessional and we feel all kinds of good feelings, you know, because <laughs> we really have abased ourselves. Sometimes I just like to know that I've done my duty, and that's enough. Uh, so don't go on feelings. Nonetheless, shame in confession is, is healing. 
And it is, as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, a self-judgment of our own sins. We are participating with God in judging ourselves. And in so doing, we are being truly human, joining with God in judging creation, starting with ourselves. Another one, accept God's forgiveness when this happens. No matter how bad the sin, if the priest says, I absolve you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, it's forgiven. If you confess, what does it say? If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And that's been relegated to the clergy. But it's, it's a done deal through Christ's work. Don't dwell on it. You know, I, when I was still an Anglican priest, I went to my father confessor one year and I made my, my confession. That, it just so happened that that night we were to have dinner with him and his wife. So in the middle of post-meal conversation, I started to bring up something I had confessed that day. And he, it was funny, I'll never forget it as long as I live. He sat back in his chair at the dinner table and he went like this. <laughs> and it, it told me, you've gone far enough, drop it. And I learned a valuable lesson in that gesture there. And that, and that was about me. Is I, I had a bad habit of dwelling on my past sins even when I'd confessed them. And that was one of my sins, dwelling on this. So don't dwell on it. Let it go. Once we confess it, it's absolved and it's gone. That does not mean that there aren't consequences for our sins. Most things we do have, have consequences. Something happens that sometimes it's with us for a short time, sometimes it's with us for a moderate amount of time, sometimes it's with us for a lifetime. You know, some people say, well, don't. Some people have behavior, and I'm thinking of a particular president, is that you've, you've been, I've been forgiven, and for, therefore you can't bring up my past transgressions. Well, when we do these things, we set things in motion. I mean, you know, if I haul off and hit you, you may forgive me, but you'll probably never forget it for the rest of your lives. And I can't say, I've confessed, and you've forgiven me, and therefore you can't bring it up, or you can't be affected by it. It's there, and I have to live with that. I set that in motion when I did it. So we live with the consequences, and we accept the fact that there will be, there are often consequences for our sins. No one is to blame, but we ourselves. And it's prideful and sinful to think, you have to let it go. <laughs> How about, I have to let it go? Don't bring up confessed sins once you confess them, unless you're doing them repeatedly. Come to confession with a list. Come prepared. Nothing worse than people who try to, people like me who think that being spontaneous is really spiritual. <laughs> and we show up and we're going to do it all spontaneously and let the Holy Spirit convict us. And we get in there and all of a sudden it's us. Uh, uh, it's, it's a mess. That's what self-examination takes care of. That. One confessor, you know, some of us, we, we go to a person, 
every time, and that way nobody gets to know us if we do the same thing over and over again. So that's the way to do it. And it's really helpful when you go to the Parish Life Conference because they have all these new these priests, you know, these different priests every time at all the services to hear confessions. It's really tempting that that be the time when one does it. Plus, it's nobody in our parish, so you don't have to look at them on Sunday. See? So if we have the same confessor all the time, he gets to know us really well. And it really is beneficial. I remember, I think I've told this story, but I went to my father confessor, and for the longest time he had nothing to say to me. He'd give me absolution and send me on my way. I was getting really prideful, you know, I, somehow I know more about the spiritual life than this guy does. He'd have something, I'd have something to say, that's for sure. Well, one day I was confessing my sins and he just blurted out, your problem is you don't trust God. And let me tell you, that flew all over me because I knew he was right. And I'd never thought about that before. I always thought I do trust God. So that's what having the same person does. He had heard enough from me over the years to know something about me, and it was a benefit to me. The next one, we, we get, sometimes we, we give assignments at the end of, of confession. It's called a penance. In America, we think a penance means a punishment. So it isn't. It's, it's something we do in order to help us on the road to recovery. So when we're given a penance, we should do it without question. And sometimes it'll seem, well, that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard. But we need to do it. It's for us. And we'll be surprised sometimes at how it will trans begin to transform us and heal us. And lastly, when we make confession, we are, for a brief moment at least, perfect. So the last words are, go in peace. And one of the few things that I found in the Episcopal Church in the 1979 prayer book was that they added the words, pray for me a sinner. That was really good. And I still use those words because when you walk away from the confessional, you're perfect and I'm not. And I want you to pray for me. So when you hear the, when you get to that point, pray. In those moments, pray for your clergy. In fact, pray for everybody on your list. That's when it's, our prayers are most efficacious. In those moments, we would never think that. You know, we're walking away embarrassed by what does he think about all that he heard. You know, will I ever be able to look him in the eye again? And will there be able to be a part of this congregation? You know, we just go to pieces thinking about the wrong things. So in answer to the question. Why do Orthodox Christians confess to a priest when confession of sin should be to God? I think you get the picture. Nonetheless, Scripture commands it, and hence the tradition does as well. It's in addition to personal repentance. The two go together. They're two parts of the same thing. Remember antinomy. It's always been the practice of the church, at least in some form, it heals us by breaking the pride which underlines our sins. Is that not what we want? If we don't want that, then we don't have any business being here or even calling ourselves Christians. And resistance in any way is almost always the result of pride, fear, or indifference to our sins. That's why we do it. 
because we come to know it, and we come to know it experientially, not just academically. You know the old saying, the old commercial, try it, you'll like it? <laughs> well, I don't know about the like it part, but it, you'll find that it works. Anyway, yes, sir? And um, under, the, uh, under the heading of fear, it seems like there's always, uh, at, least, at least with me, it, it always seems like there's, there's of everything that I know I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to confess, there's always one thing that I'm dreading, like <laughs> one particular or two particular things that I'm dreading, and sometimes that is enough to be like, oh, I feel like I want to do it. But some of the best advice I ever read, and I can't remember who the quote is from, it said, when you go to confession, it's like a battle. Kill the general first, and then everybody else will fall easily. And that's good. Just get it out of the way. That's very good. Just get it out of the way. Do, like, I'm going to do this first, and then it's done. And then everything else seems like a lot less. There's some movie with Cher in it that I saw many years ago, and she goes one scene she goes to make her confession. She's a lapsed Catholic, and she puts the thing that she really wants to confess in the middle of her confessional, and she runs through it really quickly, you know, and that, that's not uncommon. Uh, just sort of throw it out there and say it quickly enough, maybe he won't hear. You know? <laughs> or maybe his mind is on something else, who knows. Maybe he's reading his newspaper. Or cough, cough. cough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we've got it down, you see. <laughs> What? In the movie. <laughs> oh, he did? I, I don't remember it. I, all I remember is just rushing through, and I started chuckling because I thought, yeah, that's, that's the way I've been a few times. Uh, rush it through. Anyway. Um, yes, sir. Well, yeah, I see what you're saying. The monastics are the deepest, follow the deepest forms of Christianity. So, yeah, most of us have got worldly things on our minds, and we're not as deep as those people, and that's something we have to face. And sometimes, so we have to read monastic material with that qualification. It's not that we can't do it, but we're just not that pious. That's an honest assessment of self. Now, we can't understand it because in both the Western and Eastern rites, the liturgies that we have as we have them are a byproduct of the monastic movements in both of those rites. So they come out of, you can't even study them without studying the monastic development. So if that's the case, then we'd never be able to understand the liturgy. And I find, well, for example, I, you hear me talk about this, I love Father Zacharias and I read everything he's produced. And what I find is that he talks about monks in the monastic community. And every time I see the word monk, I, in my mind, I translate Christian. That automatically scales it down just a hair so that it's within the realm of doable. 
And then I find it very, very useful. So that kind of translation is necessary, I think. Uh, reading the Desert Fathers, you know, like we have the Philokalia in the library, and you read that, and you go, oh, I can't do that. Well, <coughs> generalize it and apply it and see what you get. You know, one of the things to, that might help, too, you know, and, and whenever every inquires and catechumens as they're coming into the church, we, we go through all the sacraments, and we spend the day on confession as well. One of the things I always point out in order to both show the reality but also alleviate, try to do my best to alleviate as much stress in their minds as possible. You know, I find that the posture that the church tells us as far as how we do confession with a parishioner really communicates the entirety of the role of a priest in a parishioner's life. The way that we posture ourselves. Because when we do confession, you know, we go... I take you, or he will take you, and he will bring you before Christ. And you kneel. And then, if a priest can stand for a long time, the priest will come and stand next to you, side by side, before Christ. It's as almost as if the priest is taking your hand and putting your hand in the hand of the healer. You see that? That's the role of a priest in confession. That's the role in relationship of a priest in everything. To come by your side, to not be the healer, because we can't, but to bring you to the one that is. So you never, and I have people still occasionally will tend to start turning their face towards me. And I'll stop it right there. Don't, don't look at me. You're not talking to me. I'm praying for you. You're interrupting my prayer. Keep talking to him. <laughs> But that, but that really is. You need to see that posture. The priest is not there to judge, but with Christ's judgment that brings relief and mercy. He's listening to the shepherd, the one who gives forgiveness, and he's praying for you while you're speaking to the Lord. And that's such a beautiful, calming picture of the whole scene that you're still going to struggle with embarrassment and some shame and things like that, but don't let it be on account of the one who's with you, the priest. He's there to come by your side and watch Christ give you mercy. I found that you know people think, well, well, what will he think of me? And I found that when I see people grieving in the confessional, I, that's when I grieve the most yeah. because I feel helpless as to what I can do. I can't take the grief away, and nor should I necessarily. Uh, but the, the priest is experiencing that whole situation entirely differently from anything you can imagine. Uh, as did the first century con congregations in the churches. Uh, and, uh, you know, even when, even when the, in St. Benedict's we had a confessional uh, and there was a screen, but right above the screen was the image of Christ. Uh, and, and here, if, if I hear your confession, we go before the icon of Christ and you look at him, you don't look at me. Uh, so that's the idea. As we stand before him, and, and I'm just supplemental. Yes, sir. Actually, in the, uh, the text for the Eastern Rite, um, confession uh, fleshes all, like, kind of puts all that out there. I think it's, it's something like, um, you know, behold my child, we stand before Christ, as icon is here before us. I'm here as a witness. Something about the, mm -hmm. the priestess, something like I'm here as a witness. And then 
the last thing, as a side note, the last thing before you start to confess is um, whatever you um, um, confess will be forgiven you, but behold, if you, something like, behold, if you, uh, whatever you conceal, you shall have a greater sin. If you behold, any of, any of the uh, which is, is Which is a nice thing I always thought of throwing right before you start. Like, like just remember, if you cover something up, then you're in even more trouble. So go ahead. <laughs> or, or as one priest friend of mine always says, God knows. <laughs> anyway. And if you finish confessing and the priest says, and, keep going. <laughs> just start over. That's, what, that's what's helpful about a list. You can just start over. <laughs> Read it again. <laughs> anyway. All right. Well, we're not going to have class for like, what, till now, the January? First yeah. week in January, and we'll do with singing, why we sing our services and why we sing everything. So. Because it makes it easy. <laughs> <laughs> it's more enjoyable. It does, yeah. 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 It's, you have to remember, you've got the Eastern Rite does not have low services, even though sometimes priests will say parts of the service. They don't basically have low service like we have in the Western Rite, and frequently their experience of a low service is shock. Um, that we would dare to just say it. Now, there's, there is a beauty in the low mass, I think, an inherent beauty in the low mass, but, but still, it's, it's, the singing has become such a part of the tradition. And it's as much a part of the Western Rite tradition as it is the Eastern Rite, by the way, so don't be fooled into thinking we don't have what they have. Yes. I think it was last week Sharon was saying, you know, that it was easier to, to learn everything. Yeah. Well, um, I sang in the choir, and... and we do mass, and uh, there was a time where I wasn't working, so I worked in the office where I was going. And on some work days, it would just be the priest and me. And, you know, it was a little mass, and I didn't remember it. And he'd be up there saying, I can't hear you. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, I find, I find that there are parts of the services, offices and mass, that I, I can't tell you what the words are unless I start singing it. Yes. <laughs> So, there's a reason for the madness, method and madness. Anyway, thank you. Well, God bless all.